You're listening to the Home Staging Show podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Lin. This is a show where we talk about all things real estate, home staging, and selling your home to live and to sell. Welcome back to season nine. This is episode ten. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Home Staging Show podcast. I can't believe we're already at the last episode of this season. So I'll be taking some time off, and we'll be back in October for season ten. But there is a possibility that I might do a few more free online training this summer for you guys. Um, I've been talking with somebody who、uh, is specializing in building websites. Or a money mindset, etc. So I'm trying to line this up for you guys this summer、uh, during our hiatus for the podcast. If you don't want to miss it, the best way to find out about these training is to be on our mailing list. You can go to stagemore.com, and there should be a pop up that pops up for you to subscribe to our mailing list. You can also go to our show notes on our blog. On the sidebar, there's a place for you to sign up as well. And just a quick reminder that on July 30th, I'll be doing a free online training on how to step up your home staging game. So I took the most commonly asked questions about home staging and interior styling, and I broke them down into four strategies. I'm going to be sharing these four strategies on the free online training on July 30th, so you can improve your home staging skills and win more clients. So we're going to talk about the number one mindset block that sets you back and knocks yourself down as a home stager. A lot of times we might not have enough confidence to go after what we want because we think we're not good enough. So we're going to talk about those mindset blocks during the free training and how to overcome that. We're also going to talk about how to develop that trained eye so you can keep your staging looking sharp, on point, and on trend. And we're also going to talk about how to refine your staging work. So you can go to the next level and do all that fun stuff like using bold colors or going after the luxury market. And lastly, we're going to talk about how to figure out furniture art accessories placement in their room every single time. So when you sign up for the free training, I'll also send you a free tip sheet on my top ten favorite home staging accessories and some sourcing tips for you. I also be giving away something huge on the free training, so be sure to check it out and sign up for it. Um, so again, it's going to take place on July 30th. So I'm going to put all this information in our show notes. You can also go to cashinthecushions.com to sign up right now, and that is spelled cash in the cushions, C-A-S-H-I-N-T-H-E-C-U-S-H-I-O-N-S.com. And the last time I gave this、uh, free training in May. About 300 people had gone through it, and it was one of the most popular free trainings that I've ever done. So I'm super excited to be giving it again. And during the、uh, free training, I'll also be sharing some details and a special promotion for our upcoming interior selling course launch. So you can find all that out when you sign up at cashinthecushions.com. So back onto the show, I'm have Michelle Williams. On the show, and I'm super excited because she came highly recommended by one of our、uh, guests, Anthea. Anthea has worked with Michelle Williams for a very long time. Michelle is her business coach, and so she ha- came highly recommended. And Michelle is very sought after for her ability to easily explain complex business principles and processes in a simple, straightforward way. She began her career in the financial software design. Before starting her first company in the year 2000, providing soft furnishing for the home industry, so she has a very strong background in working with different types of businesses in small, medium, and large size businesses, and she has a very strong grasp on the scalability factor that are essential to growing a business. Michelle is also a certified profit first professional. She strives to help creative businesses. Uh, to focus on the financial health and profitability of their companies, she believes that each choice is a step forward towards or away from profitability. And those who work with her understand the correlation between each decision and their own profitability. Pricing, profits, and process and procedures are important, but can be difficult for those creative entrepreneurs to implement. So Michelle has proven strategies and mindsets to overcome those obstacles, and she can give every business owner a healthy dose of confidence along the way. 
So on today's show, we talk a lot, obviously, about money mindset and also profitability. We also talk a lot about misconception about cash flow and how can we improve that as business owners. And so I'm super excited about today's show, and I know it's going to be a good one. So without further ado, let's start the show. So hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what made you get your profit first certification? Sure. Thanks, Cindy, for having me、um, on your podcast. I'm I'm happy to be here. So that that's a loaded question. What <laughs> made me get a profit first certification? So I'm gonna I'm gonna jump back probably about almost thirty years.、Um, and I know for some people that's their entire age. But hang with me for a second. So my first job out of college, I worked for Dun and Bradstreet Software and built financial application software. So I built accounts payable, general ledger, purchasing inventory. Project accounting, all of that. I did that for ten years, and then I came home to raise my children, and I started a business doing custom window treatments and, and, and light interiors and that kind of thing. And I wasn't making the money that I wanted to make at the beginning, so I was really struggling. Even though I had a business degree, I built financial software. I didn't take those principles and put them into my business at the beginning. What I did was I built a business based on what I was passionate about and what I enjoyed, and so I let the passion and the pat on the back and the excitement of the client that I was helping pay me, if you will. I let that fuel me until I realized, you know, that I was losing money so that I could help wealthy people decorate their fourth home, and I realized there was a disconnect, and so. I started putting the business principles that I had learned all the way back at school, and that I had certainly used in my development management time, into play into my business, which we could consider micro business. If a small business is five five million and under, many of us could be considered micro businesses. So I started putting all those financial things into play in my own company, and started seeing huge growth, and everything shifted. To make a long story short, we jumped ahead quite a number of years. Um, I went into an investment group, and we were running the Custom Home Furnishings Academy, where we had staging classes, we had decorating classes, we had how to make custom window treatments, installation, and I did that and started teaching how to price custom work, like how to price what we're doing, how to understand our financials, and all of that. And then、um, in 2013, we had sold the、um, partnership for that. And I opened up my coaching and consulting business, and one of my clients sent me a book, and she said, "Hey, Michelle, read this book, Profit First." She said, "I swear he's teaching the same things you've been teaching, and he's even using some of the same analogies that you've used. Like this is uncanny." And so, Cindy, I picked up the book and started reading it. And the next day, I reached—I mean, I read the whole book in one sitting—and I called Profit First headquarters the next day, and I'm like, "Okay, what what's going on here, and how do I get involved?" Because This is what I've been teaching. This is what I've been doing. I certainly, you know, I'm not the one who wrote that book, but I could have written the book.、Uh, maybe not as perfectly as mine did. He did a great job at it, and mine was a little bit different. But it was certainly something that I could get behind. And in our family, we use like a Dave Ramsey system, which is all very similar. And it was the way I grew up, where you took your money, you parsed it out, you held it, almost like an envelope system at the time. Where I had、um, a try. Little piggy bank, and I would put different things in there. And, and this profit first really does the same thing for your business. That's great. I love your background. That's why you really specialize in interiors and design professionals because you came from that background. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, I did do some. I'm going to call it staging light back in the early '90s, and I did more of the walk and talk type staging. Where the homeowner would come in, and we would walk around and pretty much kind of take their home and make it more of a house. You know what I mean? Those the conversational part of staging, but I never went as far as literally bringing in my own furniture.、I、certainly asked for that, but、um, wow, bless you all. That that's a heavy business model for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think it's a、uh, it's definitely very labor intensive, but and also.、Um, You know,、uh, overhead intensive, but I think personally, I prefer doing vacant staging, 
And so uh, that was a business model that I chose. But many people have done very well with uh, redesign, which is Occupy Home, also called Occupy Home. So, you know, to each of their own. But I think at the end of the day, it's really important to understand that it's really important to drive profits, not revenues. Because that was the biggest mistake I had, I think, when I was building my business. I was really focusing on building, like hitting, you know, the six-figure revenue. But what I was ignoring was our profit margin. So I'm really glad to have you come on today and talk all about that. I agree with you. I think in any business, we absolutely have to be revenue driven, but always with an eye towards profitability. Because Mike McCallowitz and I had this conversation on my podcast, and we had the discussion that revenue is responsibility, but profit is sustainability. And so there is a lot of responsibility when there is a lot of money flowing through your company. But if you're not making any of that money, I mean, why? We're just not building this whole infrastructure for us to not get paid, you know? And to your point, Cindy, I've seen some businesses, I've seen a lot of businesses, not some, a lot, that chose to remain smaller, but more profitable. And some chased the revenue goal. And when they did that, it was at the expense of profits. And so then they did get, as we would look in, to see this huge business, they weren't making any money or were making less money than when they've been smaller. I agree with that because that's the model that I chose. I'd rather be very small, very flexible, but we have higher profits. Because like if, like I said earlier with bacon staging, it can eat out a lot of profits, you know, surely by having labor, um, having a warehouse and all that overhead and maintenance come with. The business model, it can kill the profit very quickly. So I have to be very, very conscious in terms of what we're investing in and then also how we run the business to make sure we're not leaking money everywhere. That's so true. Every business really needs to be doing that, right? Regardless of the model, because the more money we make, it's easy to start now all of a sudden saying, oh, I can have this or our business can have that or now we can do this. We've been waiting for it. And our expenses can quickly outrun, outpace our income. I mean, almost in a, in, in a breath, right? If we're not watching it and we don't have metrics and we don't have longer term goals or even just financial goals that go all the way down to the net profit level. Right. And so for those of our listeners who are not familiar with a profit first system, can you give us a brief overview of how the system works? Sure. So the first thing that I would say, Cindy, to you and to your listeners here is Profit First is not a replacement for your accounting software or your accounting package or your accounting processes. Okay. This is not a replacement for it. It is a come alongside of. So it is a money management system. And what does that mean? It means like personally, I use QuickBooks. Some people may use FreshBooks or Sage or Zero or, you know, fill in the blank for all the different accounting packages. What those do is financially indicate where our money is spent as far as accounts and items and products and services. That is not what Profit First does. So what Profit First does is it helps you manage where the money goes and how the money is, if you will, saved and allocated. And so the basis of Profit First, and I'm going to tell you it is it's a management system, which I mentioned, but I say that And I want to put an emphasis on that because not every company implements it exactly the same way. And we'll talk a little bit later that, you know, some people struggle because they try to do an exact implementation in the book without taking into account their company. So I'm going to explain what the book says, but just know that it can be adjusted for each company. And so what the book really the method teaches is that we gather our income into an income account. So when people pay you, all the money goes into that income account. And that we then take that income and we parse it out based on the job that it's going to do. And so we may pull out a percentage for profit. And these are all strategized percentages. So they're not just random, right? So you pull out a percentage that we're going to hold out for profit. We're going to pull a percentage out that we're holding out for owner's pay. We're going to pull a percentage out for the expenses in the company and a percentage of taxes. And we are going to pull that money out of the number that is called real revenue. 
and real revenue can be similar to gross profit. It is the amount of money that is left over that is after you've taken materials and subcontractor cost out of total income. So if you think about, um, let's say an income statement, you have all the income that came in, we're going to subtract out anything that goes to materials and subs, which to some of us could be similar to a cost of goods. What's left is real revenue. That real revenue, we're going to tell it where to go. And we're going to do that by creating percentages that fit our business model and where we're heading. And we're going to go create bank accounts and we're going to move that money into those bank accounts because what Profit First also does is it tries to work with our normal human tendency. Our normal human tendency is not to say, I wonder how much money I have. What can I do? I think I'll go look at the balance sheet and the profit and loss and I'll pull up my AP report, my AR report, and I'll do a little bit of work. That's not what we do. We tend to stop and go pull up that bank account list and see what our bank account says. And then we start making decisions. And so instead of working against that, Profit First works with that. And so by moving the money into the bank accounts for the activity that it's meant to support, like taxes, we know that when we look at that account, that is a tax account and that money is to pay Uncle Sam for taxes or, you know, whoever it's due to. And so we're not going to use that money to, you know, give ourselves a profit or to pay our salary. It is set aside for taxes. And so that's what the Profit First Method does is it sets your money apart in separate bank accounts. It's all still your money. You have access to all of it. It just pretty much tells each dollar what to do. I really love that. I remember I first heard about Profit First on a podcast, you know, the School of Greatness podcast with Lewis House. And yes. Michael was on it. And then I was like, wow, this makes so much sense. I don't know why I never thought of it this way because... I know people, for example, they save for vacation, right? In a way, it's the same thing. Right. You're allocating certain parts of your funds to go into a certain purpose. And I just thought that was the cleverest thing ever. I'll have to tell you a funny story. So when I went to the first profit, first convention, I had a roommate and it was Lewis Howe's mom. <gasps> no way. What's her mom? Yes. What's his mom like? She's great. Her name's Diana. We roomed together and it was before Lewis had blown up. And so she was telling me all these things that her son Lewis was about to do. That was back in 2015. Yeah. He had not really hit the scene yet. You know, it came right after that. But funny, she's, um, she was a bookkeeper or is a bookkeeper. I don't know if she's still doing it, but we roomed together. So how funny is that? That's crazy. I really love his podcast. It really helped me shift a lot of mindset issues that I had. And I was going through a really low point in my life in 2014, and he really helped me with his podcast, just simply by interviewing all these really inspirational people. And I was forever grateful. And telling his story, right? Yeah. He shares his own struggles and, and, the, and makes it very real. So Yeah, no, I really love his podcast. And so I, I really recommend it to everybody I know, so... And so I know cash flow is incredibly important. Can you briefly explain what cash flow is in a business and what are some of the common misconceptions? Sure. You know, it's so funny. Cash is what we run off of. I mean, I know we do a lot of it electronically and we never really see it. But I would tell you one of the largest, well, let me back up. The number one issue that I would normally get from larger companies is cash flow. And what cash flow simply means is how cash flows in and out of the business. And um, if we've had a business for any amount of time and we're not careful and watchful, we can certainly see that cash can flow out a lot faster than it flows in, right? And so to manage cash flow, some things that we have to stop and think about are when do we get paid? How do we get paid? Has the work already been done? When can we recognize that cash as income? Because just because you have cash come into your company, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can recognize it as income. And so really just having that strategy for when do we recognize income? When do we get paid? Is it 100%, 50%, 10% upfront all the time? You know, it, it's a management. It is a full management opportunity just to keep up with cash in and out, especially if you have rent and employees and payroll and all of that. And Profit First tries to work with that to help you stop and think about 
like when does the money come in? I know in the book, he really talks about breaking down your month into two week intervals or, you know, two intervals, the first through the 15th and then like the 16th through the 30th or 31st and then setting all of your payments to the 10th and 25th so that we're managing in two week increments, knowing how much cash we need to bring in for those two weeks based on how much cash is going out those two weeks. That's amazing. And so in your opinion, what are some of the common causes that cause these poor cash flow problems? So here's what I see. I see either people not getting money up front, right? They're getting money behind the work instead of in front of the work. So then what happens is if, let's say that you didn't get paid for staging until after everything had been staged. Well, if you're having to pay movers or you're having to pay anything that has to do with staging that particular space, you're out of pocket all of that money in advance. And then if they wait seven days to pay you, you're having to float that money up front. Okay. Right. A shift is if we were to take a down payment or some amount of money or the first month or whatever, some money up front to get started. Now I've got some operating cash to start paying for these things that are going into um, the staging of that particular space. And so one of it has to do with the amount of down payments that we get or retainers that we get. And then secondly, the timing of when we get it. And then, you know, thirdly, if somebody pays you, let's say this is really big on the interior design side, and I can see it hitting the staging side as well. If somebody were to pay you upfront for six months of staging, you really cannot look at all of that as income. You have to take it, you know, a month at a time because at some point you've not earned that money until you've delivered the product and service at the six month mark. And it hits interior designers because they'll, you know, if they were to take all the money to go buy furniture and that furniture is not going to show up for four months to go in that client's home, they can't capture all the excess of, you know, what they're paying their vendors as profit because they've not delivered that piece of furniture yet. Right. And so we have to be careful because some people, what happens here is the other place they get caught up. We take in money early, but we've not yet earned it. And we run it through our business and start spending it. And so now we are taking money from the future to pay for expenses of the past. Yes. I see that with stagers also. Um, a lot of new stagers, especially, I get a lot of emails from new stagers and one of the most common questions is like, how soon can I start buying inventory? And I'm always like, you never buy inventory until you book the job and get paid a deposit to do it. Because mm -hmm. I would never tell any of my students, for example, that you should go out and shop, you know, even before you book the job. Because I, I don't believe that you should be in debt before you even start the business. So I know shopping is very exciting. You know, it's very fun. But cash flow is really key in terms of running our business. Yeah, no, no doubt. And that I think that any business, we have to have some sort of startup capital, but you certainly can't go out and, you know, blow it all buying pretty lamps and pretty things to put in a home when you don't even have the, the job yet to put it in. Yeah. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I, I do understand that we have to, you know, especially if you're doing vacant staging, you have to build up inventory. At some point, you're either renting it all or you have inventory or some combo of the two. And, and really being able to do the math to determine when is it better to rent and when is it better to buy? Because I don't think it's an either or. Yeah, I think that is a struggle with most stagers, I think. Like, I think for me early on, I was just like, I hate renting. I feel like I have no control. I am basically a slave to their schedule. And mm -hmm. for me, it was really important that I should just have my own inventory. So I made a decision early on I was going to do that. And I right. built my inventory as I built my business. I started my business actually when I was 25 and I built it out of my parents' garage. It wasn't, I didn't even own a house. I didn't, like my apartment didn't have a <laughs> garage. So I was storing everything in my parents' garage. And my sister and my mom will help me out, but I built the business. I was really hesitant to buy the inventory and my mom right. was very level-headed. And she said, if you want to make money, you need to make investment in your business and your inventory is going to be your tool for making your business work. So yeah, you, you know, now that you booked a job, go ahead and buy inventory because renting is just not going to be feasible in the long run. Right. And 
I was like, well, you're right. I hate to say it. My mom was always right. And um, so I started buying inventory, but I did it very carefully because I didn't know what kind of stage I was going to be yet. I wasn't sure what kind of job I was going to get. So I always booked a job first, got the deposit check, and then I go shopping. Timing-wise, it can be a little bit crazy because sometimes a job might happen at the end of the week. But I somehow always was able to find furniture store that had inventory or I just like went crazy with sourcing. So when I hear new stagers are really gung-ho about buying new inventory, I'm always just be like, you know, you really have to think about in terms of how much startup capital you have because it's not limitless. You know, it's not coming from a tree. It's not like you shake it, you get money. You have limited capital. So you need to really make sure that you're spending, you're investing on things that you truly are going to use in your business. So let's dig into inventory for just a minute, because I think that's super important. And, and I, I support everything that you just said. A couple of other things about it, though. Once you've been in business for a while, I work with quite a few stagers. And here's what I see. They primarily do vacant home staging. And here's what, what they run into. Of course, things get damaged, right? Yes. And you're going back and forth with the movers. Things um, sprout feet and walk away. <laughs> right? They, they yes. were there when you staged and they're not there when you go back. We've had both of those happen repeatedly, right? It's, it's a hazard of the job. It just is what is. Yeah. And then the third one is some things start to look dated or worn out after a while. Maybe they aren't broken, but they just look a little aged or they, and I say all that because one of the beautiful things about the profit first method and about being able to really understand your financials, those are the two areas that I like to really target, understand the financials and then manage the money. But what we would do is we create an account in profit first. So in your bank account, that's called an inventory account. And we use it to replenish inventory to either buy more because your jobs are growing bigger or to replenish the broken pieces. And so we could put a percentage of every sale into that inventory account so that we can continue. Because it's not like you buy inventory and then you're done. It is an ongoing process. Right. You know? and, and let's say that you had enough inventory to stage five homes and you have 10 to stage, well, you're going to have to have money to stage those extra five or you're not gonna take that work, right? Plus, when we first start, a lot of times the homes are smaller and then you get some 10,000 square foot house, you know, the furniture has to look like it's within the scale and the proportion and the style that you want to be known for as a stager. So there's an aesthetic that you're going for as well. And that can shift over time. So just pointing all that out because managing your financials in a staging business isn't just about making the money that you're keeping for right now. It's about making the money to replenish those inventory pieces, which are assets for the company, right? Replenishing those and getting you paid at the same time. Exactly. And that is a juggling. That is, you're talking, you're juggling some balls. Exactly. And I think one of the most common mistakes I myself have made, and I've seen a lot of stagers make, is that they think when they bought the inventory, they don't really realize that once you bought the inventory, it's in the door, it depreciates immediately. And like you said, it goes through these warranty process. But most of the time, furniture are not really meant to be moved, you know, every month. And so right. it's really important to really invest in pieces that truly reflect the work that you want to do as a stager. Because like you said, styles changes, you know, inventory gets tired. So I think as, as a business owner, you really have to be very diligent to make sure you have the best assets that you have to attract the right clients. Yeah, and it's a balancing act as well with can I run out to a home goods and buy some stuff or do I need to invest a level, you know, a level or two up? Like how many times is it really going to be schlepped from home to home to home to home and can it withstand that? So is it a one-time use? Is it a 10-time use? How long do I expect this to be in my inventory? It, it really is a strategy and it becomes when you're watching everything, it's not just about the pretty. It's the same with design and with all these other types of creative endeavors. The pretty and the fun is about 20%. The other 80% is business strategy. 
I totally agree with that. It's weird. Everything is explainable via the eighty twenty rule. I don't know why. It really is, isn't it? It's funny. Yeah, it's always like in real estate. They say eighty percent of agents does twenty percent of work, and twenty percent agent does eighty percent of work. And then when I met this wardrobe seller, she says most people only wear twenty percent of their closet. It's just kind of funny that like eighty twenty rule just seems to be everything in our lives. I know that I didn't even thought about that, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, no, she was right when she told me that. I was like, "Oh, you're right. I only really wear twenty <laughs> percent." And um, personally, from my experiences when I'm working with stagers, I think a lot of issues in finances also come from mindset. So, how can we identify what is holding us back? So, let me ask you: What do you think your mindset issue was? What would you? What What was the the thing that you maybe that you saw as your block? Well, I think my block was that. Well, I don't know. This I feel like this ties into a bigger cultural issue because I I was born and raised and grew <laughs> okay. up in Taiwan, and I think I was really trying to make my parents happy by having a business that my parents would approve of, and okay. both my parents had their own businesses, and both were successful in their fields, and I. For the longest time, I feel like I was chasing the wrong business model because my father had a construction business that was a fairly large scale in Taiwan, and I felt that wow, that looked really cool. You know, as a child growing up in the environment, I was like, wow, that looks great. You know, and I think that I thought that was a business I really, really wanted. And so,、mm-hmm. for the longest time, that was what I was blindly chasing. Like I was chasing this revenue, I was chasing, but I was very unhappy. Like I feel ashamed because I felt like my business was not successful, even though it looked successful to other people. And I feel fake. I feel not very authentic. And I was started working with my business coach, and the first thing she worked with me on was my mindset. And she really helped me to get clarity in terms of what is my core beliefs, like what is my why, right? Which is also a book by、uh, Simon Sinek. I, I Simon Sinek. Sinek, yeah.、Right. And、um, it was a great book. I really highly recommend as well. And so now everything I, I do, I come from that place. Like, what is my core value and what is my why? And once I got that clarity, I realized I was building a business that was not me. And、okay. I realized I actually want a very small scale business, but very nimble, very flexible, very quick to shift. You know, because I think the bigger your business gets, the harder it is to make certain changes sometimes, just because、Absolutely. the amount of people involved, amount of capital involved, etc., etc. So then my、okay. business really shifted. It was really weird because once I changed that. I really focusing on a certain type of starter home market in San Francisco Bay Area, and that's all I focus on. And so I change my inventory, and I change the way I market. And it's it's just really weird. It felt like everything started clicking for me. And then that year, that same year, we went to six figure. It was、yeah. weird. Like it just once that shifted. It, actually, it makes perfect sense. So so let's dig into that for just a second. The reason I asked what yours was is because for every person it could be a little different, but almost every single time it goes back to what we believed about money and、right. success as a child. Right. Almost every single time. That's true. What was our definition of money and success? How are we projecting that onto what we're doing and building and creating at this point? However, if we build a business that is outside. Of our core values, our why and our values, right? And they all tie together. Simon Sinek and I, I have all my clients go listen. He has like an 18-minute TED talk. He has more than one, but this one is on finding your why. And so, I highly recommend that your listeners go out and grab that TED talk. But your why was developed before the age of 18. It's based on a very Firmly held belief system. It's not changing, and it is the same, Cindy. Regardless of whether you're at work, you're at play, you're with your family, it doesn't matter. It is based on some firmly held belief system. Okay, usually happens and was created from a high high or a low low. And so, when you can identify what yours is, it is like the thing that gets you out of the bed in the morning. And when you can identify it, like you said, you've done. And you align that with your values, like your top three. You might have ten or twelve. I like to have my clients identify their why, identify their top three values, 
And then we do the Gallup Strengths Finder. And I have them look at their top five strengths. Because to me, if we're going to build a business and I'm going to coach my clients to build a business, it should be one, number one, that fits their why. Number two, it should align with their values. And number three, it should be built on their strengths, not their weaknesses. And then, you know, if they value a huge business, that's what we'll build. If they value a smaller business that is nimble, then that's what we build. I had a client that I met with for dinner last night and she had um, spoken to another advisor and, you know, his comment to her was, well, you need to do this, this and this. And he was pretty much saying to her that she needed to give up um, customer service in her business to chase the money. And she was saying, I can't do that. Like, I cannot even imagine a world where I would give up customer service to chase the money. And he said, well, you're never going to be a huge company. And she's like, but that's OK. And so we had a conversation that talked about, you know, was he wrong? No. But what he was telling her didn't align with her values. And that's why it felt like I can't build that business. That's the same thing that you were just describing to me. The idea that you had of success and of money didn't translate to the way that you were trying to build your business. And in a way that kind of resonated with your own truth. And I will tell you that we are successful or we are failures. And that starts in our brain. It starts with how we think. There is the thought that says what you um, focus on expands. And so if we're focusing on, I can do this, here's a way around this, or I am successful. If we focus on what that takes, we will give our energy to it. But if we focus on, I'm going to mess up, I'm going to screw up, I can't charge enough, I'm not worth that, then that's what we tend to believe. That becomes kind of that, that recording in our brain that plays over and over. So mindset is huge. If we believe we can do things, we can do a lot. But we create these limits on ourselves from some preconceived notion or some belief system. And I'm not saying that all of them are wrong. But if we really want to be successful, we have to challenge them. We have to look at them. We have to ask ourselves, where did that belief come from? And is it true? Is it based on fact? Or is it somebody else's limit that they then put on me? Right. And I accept it as my own. And so I, I, I think mindset work absolutely has to be done. I run a seven day or five day challenge around profitability a couple times a year. And the majority of that week is all mindset work before we ever look at finances. Because if somebody believes that they don't know the math, they can't do it. They can't understand their financials. I'm creative. I'm not a math brain. If they sit and tell themselves that negative story over and over and over, they will never look at their finances. They'll never try to own it. They'll never try to correct it because in some weird way they think they can't. But if they tell themselves, I might not be expert at it, but I'm going to do it. I can figure it out. That growth mindset versus fixed mindset. If they will go ahead and have that conversation with themselves, then they're more open to looking at it and trying to understand it because they've told themselves they can do it. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I love it. And I love that you mentioned Strengths Finder. It's actually one of the books that I recommend to my students as well in our courses. And I really believe about mindset shift because I went through it myself. And so actually in the beginning of our courses, one of the first things that the students have to do is define their own success because I realized what was chasing was kind of like, someone else's success. I think that story right. that you just shared was perfect because that wasn't her definition of success. That was his definition of success. Mm -hmm. So it didn't fit with her core values. So I totally believe, I know it sounds very woo woo or whatever, but I totally believe in that. I do believe, because I see it now, like there's, there are self-limiting kind of prophecy in a way. It's that right. if you believe that negative belief, you're going to manifest it. So, so yeah. Right, because everything that we choose and that we do is because of that idea that's around it that says, I'll tell you, so they did a study years ago. I should go look it up at some point. But they took like a dog and put him in a cage. And every time he tried to come out of the cage, they zapped him, okay? They kept putting him back in the cage until it got to the point that they opened the door of the cage and the dog would never come out. Right. There was nothing stopping the dog. But it had a belief that because this had happened or, you know, he had been conditioned, exactly. if you will, to stay in that cage. And I think quite often we are in a cage of our own making and there's not really a door stopping us. But we don't we don't look at that. 
Yeah, exactly. We it as if all four walls are around us. And, you know, my coach even says to me sometimes, Michelle, it doesn't have to be that hard. What, who said that? Why do you believe that? I mean, and so when she says it to me, right, because you, we can't always fix our businesses from the inside. You know, there's a saying that says you cannot fix your, you can't fix anything with the same ideas that got you where you are. It's got to be a new idea, a new way of thinking, or you're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over and over, which is insanity. And so having inside and outside perspectives are huge. That's why it's great that you're sharing these things with your students, you know, because they're coming with their own belief systems and then you're challenging it not to tell them theirs are wrong, but to sharpen theirs. Yes, I really believe that because I've been through it. So I firmly believe it because I know it works. It worked for me. It worked for other people in my mastermind group. I, I've seen it many times. And a lot of times I do feel, especially like listening to uh, Louis House podcast, like it really comes down to mindset because he interviews all these top athletes, top experts in their fields. And a lot of them all talk about mindset, like how mm -hmm. to really... I think Lewis has this term like called the flow, basically. It's like the optimal zone. I mean, it sounds very football-y, you know, like very athletic kind right. of term. But it is true because all these athletes are really focusing on what is in their zone, what what is going to push them into their flow state. And for me, it's really coming from my core value. I really feel that I really need to do work that makes an impact. Otherwise, I'm not going to feel fulfilled by my work. And so that really challenged me to examine everything that I do within my company, like what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. I agree. I, I defined my why. I wrote it down, defined my values, wrote it down and defined my mission. And now every opportunity that comes to me, I look at it and say, does it support my why? Does it align with my values? And does it forward my mission? And if it doesn't do that, I can say no without any regret. And with a great big smile and just move on. It just does not align with where I am and where I'm going. I love it. It's so simple, but it is so effective. Cool. It's it's basically just a very natural screening system. Um, yeah. To really and make it makes sure it it's easy. a good fit. Yeah. To make it so easy. Right. The first couple of years, I can remember going, should I do it? Should I not? I don't know. What are they offering? I don't know. You know, like I'm having all this internal dialogue, which is like taking up all my energy, not profitable in any way. So now it's just, a lot more, it is more of a flow. Even if I needed to call that person and say, let's have a conversation. I thought the same thing when you asked me to be on the podcast. What are you doing? What are you saying? Is your message similar to mine? Are your people my people? Yes, let's talk. Because if your people were not my people, if your conversation wasn't my conversation, if I didn't feel like I had any value to add and, and there was no value that I could take from you, right? Even just in conversation, even just in collaboration or relationship, why would I take the time to do an hour podcast? Like, why would you, right? Why would you go out and get people to be on your podcast that brought no value to your listeners? You wouldn't do that. No. And I feel like, to be honest, podcasting is kind of a selfish reason for me because I love interviewing people like you. Everybody that I've interviewed, I feel like they're at the top of their game. And then when they talk about what they love to do, there's this passion that comes through their voice. I know it sounds super cheesy. But no, no, I no, really no. Love I have it. my own podcast and I do the same thing. And I'll tell you, Cindy, the same way that we've talked about on the staging side or in, in your business in general, I have the same thing for my podcast. I've got a mission for my podcast. I've got values for my podcast. It, it's aligning with the same why of everything else. And that helps me choose who's going to come in and be online. I mean, we're doing the same things. And that's what I think is so beautiful is that it's the same whether you're a speaker, whether you're a stager, whether you're an interior designer, a business coach, a podcaster, it doesn't matter. Business is business. And we cannot forget basic business principles just to follow our passion or we're going to be broke and then the passion's not going to matter anymore. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think... A lot of times, mindset really shows up in pricing. And mm -hmm. so how can we price ourselves, our services, without having these emotions tied in and with confidence? Oh, I hope you've got like 14 hours of a podcast for that one. Oh, my God. Um, I would love it if you want to do 14 <laughs> hours. <laughs> well, what's so funny is I actually do have a course called Pricing Without Emotion, and it's 16 hours. So that's why I say it's a long conversation, but I'll narrow it down to this for the listeners for today. 
I was on a panel one time with a woman and somebody stood up and asked the question, how do you answer when somebody calls and says, Michelle's only charging $200 for that service and Cindy's charging $400. And my panelist friend said, you know what? I just usually answer them. Michelle clearly understands the value of what she's putting out there and Cindy understands hers. That's great. In other I words, love that. If we don't think it's valuable, we're going to struggle to put a price on it. So when we talk about mindset, I've got to get out of the mindset of how easy it is for me to do what I'm doing, because that is the first thing that lowers our pricing. We think this is so easy. This is not a big deal. I've done this a hundred times. But the truth of the matter is when people pay you, they're paying you for a couple of things. They're paying you for your knowledge. They're paying you for your expertise. They're paying you for your time and for the value that you bring to them. If we pick that apart quickly, knowledge is what you know. Expertise is that you can put it into action, right? I can know how to pull a tooth, but I am not going to go out and do it. Right. I can watch a YouTube video on anything, right? I can Google just about anything and have knowledge. But knowledge and action is expertise. They're paying for that. They're paying me for time. And that is the time in the moment that I'm serving them. But the value comes with all the time that I've spent, all the education that I've paid for, that brings me to the moment of service to serve them at such a high level. And then at that point, I'm reducing their stress. They're out on the tennis court while I'm working my bum off, trying to get their house staged to make it look great, dripping sweat because the heat's probably on and we're in the middle of August. And there is a price for that. And so if I don't recognize what that price is, I won't price it well. And so the first thing I tell people is get out of your own way. It's easy for you because it's a strength, but they're not paying you for that. They're paying you for all these other things. And so identify what they are, identify every way you serve that client, identify every stress relief, you know, for staging, identify how much faster the home sells. You know, you know, all, you all know that write every single thing down and then also have a plan of how that fits into your overall financials. Because if you know overall financially, I need to sell $200,000 so that I can have, you know, 75,000 net profit or whatever the numbers are, you'll have an idea of how much you need to do and how much you need to charge. But it, it is definitely a full blown, well thought out strategy. And it does start with mindset. If you don't think you're worth it, nobody else will think you're worth it, period. Love it. And I think you brought a really good point, which is that the knowledge part, because I think that a lot of times people have difficulties with pricing is because they don't know how much profit that they need to make to run their business. So as business owners, how do we figure out how much profit we need to make to run the business? And this also tie in a question a listener Elle had submitted, but she's asking about what is the target profit margin per job you should be aiming for? Okay. So the first thing I'm going to say is we have a couple of different definitions of profit. And so anytime that people use the general word profit, I like to go back and define it. Okay. Because there's gross profit and then there's net profit. And then with net profit, we're looking at, are you talking before taxes, after taxes? Like what point in the flow are we talking about profit here? So let's start with gross profit. Gross profit is the amount that we're making after cost of goods have been removed from the sale or, or the income of whatever your product or service. Okay. So if you've sold staging for $5,000 and a thousand of it is, you know, you've got to pay the movers and you've got to buy a few items for it. Your gross profit is $4,000. Now that gross profit is the amount of money that your company is going to use. So nobody's been paid out of that, but maybe the movers if they're subcontractors. So then if you're talking about one type of profit, that's gross profit. I like that number to be 40 to 60%. I've got a couple of staging companies right now and how you handle inventory is a whole nother conversation. I'll have that one in a minute. But I would tell you that I think they're running at like 80 or 90% gross profit. But that is because when they buy inventory, inventory does not show up on their profit and loss statement. It's going to show up as an asset. So if they go out and buy a $2,000 sofa, it's not coming out as a cost of goods, right? It is now showing up on the asset side on the balance sheet. And so it is not looked at as reducing the gross profit of that particular job. 
if you are buying furniture that you are staging in a property and the people are coming in and buying it, then yes. So, you know, you've got to look at, are you talking about gross profit without counting inventory or counting inventory? So you just have to know. Then as you scoot down that profit and loss statement, that gross profit, that $4,000 that I mentioned a minute ago, is that how much I said it was? Was it 4,000? I can't remember. 5,000, 1,000, 4,000. Yep. That 4,000 now becomes what we're going to use to manage the company. So that's where we're going to be paying any salaries for any staff that we have. We're going to be paying our overhead, our phone, our website, all of those things. At the end, what we have is net profit. Now, how much net profit should we have? We should have enough there based on the type of business that you are. If you are an, um, an LLC or a sole proprietor, you should have enough at the bottom to cover your taxes, to cover your salary, and to cover profit in the company. If you are doing profit first and your gross profit, that real revenue number is 250,000 or under, which would mean that your total revenue was three, four, five hundred thousand dollars. Okay. If that gross profit is 250,000 of that 250,000, we would tell you that a healthy business would have 30% in expenses, 15% of that gross profit. Now we're not talking total sales, but of gross profit, 15% of that number of that 250,000, if you will, would go to taxes, 50% would go to owner's pay and 5% would remain as profit in the company. Amazing. <laughs> I think a lot of times stagers are looking for that magic number. Like, is it 35.6% or kind of thing? But I think what right. you just said really helps to break it down. And Elle's question is actually, she's wondering about target profit margin between owning own inventory versus renting the inventory. So how would that change in terms of percentage? Or is it that it, it really, well, again, that's going to be according to how are you looking at it. For example, right. if people say, I've got 30% profit, well, 30% of what number? Are we talking gross or are we talking net? And tell me what you did with inventory. Because if inventory is an asset, you're not going to write it off, right? Or remove it as an expense on everything that you do. That's not how that works. Right. If I've got $5,000 that they paid me and I went out and bought a thousand dollars worth of furniture, that is not going to show up as reducing my profitability directly because that 1000 was actually a company investment for an asset. It was not a cost of good for that project unless I left it with them or they bought it and took it. But if not, it goes into kind of my stable. It goes into my inventory count. That is an asset and that is very different. So when you're managing these numbers, you know, I, I don't know. It, I can't just tell you a percentage like that without looking at the detail of where it's going and then asking you, do you have your salary built in? Do you have your taxes built in? Do you have your profit built in? Because if you've got that built in, and it's working for you and you're making the money you want to make and need to make and managing it, then you're doing good. But we have to be careful when we are comparing. And I understand the need. Everybody wants to. We can compare it, but we got to be really, really clear on all the expenses in the company, all the assets and inventory that we're purchasing and all of the cost of goods. Then we compare apples to apples. Everything else is apples to oranges. Great. Love it. And so as a business owner, what are some of the ways that we can work on to increase our net profit? Net profit is increased two ways. It is increased by increasing total sales and decreasing cost of goods, right? Which increases gross profit. So if we increase gross profit, the next thing we can do is decrease our expenses. So if you think about a profit and loss statement, we have income, and then we take out the cost of goods, which is an expense. And then we take out the company expenses. So the more that we can sell more and reduce expenses, whether it's cost of goods driven or overhead company driven, you're going to make a higher net profit. It is always about managing and reducing expenses and increasing income. Great. I totally agree with that. At the top and at the bottom. L let me say this, Cindy. Remember at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that when you first started, you were more revenue 
um, focused yes. mm-hmm. than profit focused. And so what happens is a lot of people focus on revenue and they focus on gross profit. I've got a gross profit margin of 35% of 40% of 80%. And that's cool. That's great. But what they don't then do is focus on the bottom part of the PL, and that is the company expenses. And that's what chews up that money. Because just because you got paid 5,000, if you paid a thousand out in cost of goods, that 4,000 is not Sandy's to bring home. That 4,000 now runs through the company to pay all the company expenses. And then Cindy gets to bring some home. And if we miss the, the managing of the bottom part of our income statement, we are in deep trouble. And that's how I've had company companies that were one and two and $3 million and they're losing a hundred thousand dollars with debt on the backside of that because they didn't manage it. Yeah. They can sell like crazy, but they can't manage money. Yeah, I agree with that. Because a girlfriend of mine, she was really excited. And then she told me that when she hit her first million in her business, she was super excited. And she called me. And a few weeks later, I ran to her and she's like, you know what, guess what, when we ran our books, we actually lost $80,000. Yeah. (laughs) So that's when I really realized that, you know, revenue is not necessarily equal to profit. And right. I also learned it the hard way. I was mismanaging the bottom part of our PL. Like I was not watching expenses very closely. And I know people say, you know, you need to spend money to make money, but I don't think that is necessarily true. I think you need to spend money, you need to invest your money very strategically to make sure that it's going to get return on investment for your business. Agreed. And so we talk a lot about mindset today, and I want to know, in your opinion, what is a successful business? I think a successful business is a business that works with integrity, that supports the why and the values of the owner and pays them a fair salary for the work they do. I don't think it's about size. I don't think it's about revenue. I don't think it's about those things. I think it is a business that has a great reputation, again, so they work with integrity it supports the whys and values, and it supports the lifestyle of the owner. Love it. I love it. I just feel you're super in sync with how I feel about it. It's so, it's actually kind of creepy. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's really exactly what I push in our course, actually, is that uh, it really, because I think in my 20s, I really focusing on building my business, and I really sacrifice my personal life for it. And in a way, I don't regret it, because it, I really grew up with my business in a lot of different ways. But at the same time, I also kind of wish I balanced it a bit more. So now I really just push to have my business to serve my lifestyle and not the other way around. Yeah. And I'm way past my 20s. Remember, I'm going to just had to go back 30 years just to get started. But I'll tell you, I've been able to, I mean, I've had a I've had a business of one. I've had a business with a 9,000 square foot building and employees from all over the country. I've had a little bit of all of it. And I got to tell you, my, my goal was to be able to be home and raise my children and make an income. And so I was able to scale up, scale down, scale left, scale right. And what I realized through all of that and with working with the amount of clients that I've worked with over the last 10 years, I'm telling you, I'll have clients come to me that make 125000 in total sales and they've got a $75,000 salary. I would take that any day than a company that's making four, five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand, a million, and they're losing 80000 and people aren't getting paid. Give me the small business any day that is able to meet my financial obligations and keep me happy and satisfied than the one. That's why when Mike McCallitz and I talked, Um, on my podcast, the comment was sales is responsibility and profit is sustainability. And I would rather have the sustainability of a smaller firm than the responsibility of a larger firm if I didn't have that profit. Right. I agree with that. I remember once I read this quote, it was said by the richest man in Taiwan, actually, he was a self-made man. He's passed away now. But uh, one of his famous quotes was that an unethical business is an unprofitable one because mm-hmm. when you have a company, you are responsible for the employees in your business. If you're mm-hmm. not making profits to make sure your employees grow and prosper, it is unethical. And I, I do agree with him, even though even if you're a company of one or company of 20, if you have a company of one, you are responsible for yourself. And so if you don't make profits, 
it's going to have all these different issues within your company, not only impact you in your personal life and business life, it's also going to impact other people who do businesses with you. Like imagine if you can't pay your vendors, you can't pay your furniture store. I mean, that's going to have a financial impact on someone else. That's right. Yeah. So one of our listeners, Nadine, actually submitted a kind of a technical question. She said that I started implementing Profit First and would love to hear more about how to use it in combination with QuickBooks. Yeah, that's really easy. So the first thing you're going to do is you are literally, when you do Profit First, you're going to the bank and set up whatever bank accounts you need, right? So if you are doing it by yourself or working with me through my Master Your Profit course, whatever way you're doing it, you're first going to determine what bank accounts you need. You're going to go to the bank and you're going to set them up. You're going to come back home or come back to your office and you're going to go into your QuickBooks and you're going to set up those four, five, six bank accounts, whatever you established, and you're going to set them up in your QuickBooks and you're going to put in the deposits um, of the money that you made. And then every month when you transfer your funds in the bank, right? We have to go to the bank to transfer the funds. When you do that, you go into QuickBooks and transfer the funds. That's it. Awesome. And so as our show coming to an end, I have one last question for you. What is the number one tip you'll give to homestagers when it comes to their finances? The number one tip I would give you is if you are truly a business owner, it is imperative that you know your numbers, that you understand your financials. Um, Ignorance of numbers or choosing not to look at them or not understanding them is not serving you well. And so if you really want to be a true business owner, you need to understand your financials and find somebody. If you don't know them, ask your accountant, ask a bookkeeper. You know, I've got courses, but there are many ways that you can do it. But it is not enough to not understand them. That's great. Thank you so much again for coming on the show. You're welcome, Cindy. So that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help and support the show, there are three ways to do so. You can leave a review and rating on iTunes. You can share the show on social media, or you can donate to support the maintaining costs for the podcast. You can make a donation through the show notes or on the sidebar of our site. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. This will help us grow the show and book more guests. If you have any questions, feedback, and suggestions, you can comment on the show notes. You also find the show notes by going to stagemore.com slash podcast. That's it. Have a fantastic week and happy staging.